me read the text of the Lord's Prayer in its entirety together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just prayed. We've prayed the prayer that your Son instructed us to pray when his disciples asked him. So, Lord, we leave it at that. And our prayer is simply to ask for instruction on this one particular sentence that um, Jesus included. So we leave it in your hands. We submit ourselves to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Jesus gave the disciples the model prayer that I've just read to you in response to their request of him to teach them how to pray. So this prayer is his showing them, and by his showing them, it's his showing us how to pray, which when we do just a brief review, began with knowing the one to whom they and we speak. Our Father in heaven. He began reminding them of the one to whom they and we speak in prayer, and he proceeded from there to order order for them the priority of our prayers. Or, as I worded it, when we work through that first petition, the basis on which, or the goal for which, We pray everything we pray and really process all of life, not just praying. Hallowed be your name. Those words capture the purpose for which all things exist and the goal for which God sovereignly rules the entire universe. From the formation of nations and the installation of kings and presidents to the institution of marriage and the formation of babies in the womb to the bestowing of abundant blessing and the allowance of immense pain and suffering to the sending of his son into this world to live and to die to his raising him from the dead and exalting him above all things as king of kings and lord of lords forevermore. To the salvation of your soul on down to every detail of life for you as his child as it is in its most happy moments as well as in its darkest hours. That the name of God would be, to use the same terminology that I used back then, which I said back then, and I'll reiterate that I got from Tim Keller and John Piper in particular, that the name of our God would be set apart among us, in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches, and in our world, to the ends of the earth, as the most precious, the most holy, the most beautiful reality and our ultimate concern in every area of life. It is why we pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done. 
Because when His kingdom comes in its full and eternal manifestation, His name will, in fact, be eternally hallowed without hindrance in and among His people. So in this time of anticipation, which is what this life is, in this time of anticipation... As his kingdom has already broken into this world of curse and sin and Satan, we pray that what will be in the future in its fullness will continue to be in the present. That his kingdom would break through and break through again and again and again afresh in our day through the hindrances of this world. Through the hindrances of the world, the flesh, and the devil, so that we, his people, would see his kingdom. And through us, his people, the world would see his kingdom. And they'd see us rejoicing in it and living as faithful citizens of it for the hallowing of his name. And, brothers and sisters, they would join us. In other words, when we pray the will of God be done, we are not merely praying that God would have his way in our tug of war with him over some specific request. When we pray the will of God be done, we are acknowledging that his kingdom that will be is already, and we're praying that it would break through and reveal above all things the being of God as the most precious, most holy, most beautiful reality possible among us so that we would rejoice in it, meaning that we would rejoice in Him. This prayer is so much more than mere form and duty. Like, you say the words, that's enough. It's not. That's not what this model prayer was meant to accomplish. I think this short prayer actually makes sense of the world. This short prayer tells us why all things exist, and then it shows us how that first and ultimate concern for the hallowing of God's name in and among all things is accomplished. And not to get too far off track here this morning but it was at this point in my preparation that James chapter 4 struck me really really hard because I wonder if when James talks about our passions at war within us causing conflict within us and preventing answers to our prayers I wonder if the conflicted passions that he's talking about boil down to an internal conflict over the ultimate purpose of all things. As James says, either your passions, meaning you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, and I had to ask myself for the first time this week, How do you actually ask wrongly? Is it merely in form? 
So did you say the wrong words? No. James says you ask wrongly because you ask in order to spend what you're hoping for as an answer on you. Meaning your passions. As opposed to him and his ultimate passion, which is the hallowing of his name. So I'm asking if it's possible that the conflicted passions within us as they relate to prayer and more specifically our prayers being answered are our innate passions to spend what we are hoping for as an answer on us and our passions as opposed to asking for the purpose and with the hope of spending what we're hoping for as an answer on him, meaning that hallowing of his name in us in our homes in our church and in our world i wonder if that's the conflict james is getting at is it possible that we have not because we ask not meaning we ask wrongly meaning we ask for a different reason than god intends to to answer We ask to spend up his answers on us when he answers to see his name hallowed in our hearts and in our world. And as long as we ask wrongly by James and Jesus definition of what asking wrongly is, we will not receive or perhaps even more likely we will completely miss it when he answers. Man, has it caused me this last week to stop and wonder how many times I have completely missed kind, gracious, careful, heaven bending an ear and hearing my voice and knowing my heart answers to prayer that God was graciously granting so that his name would be hallowed in my heart and in my home and in my church and in my world. And I've missed it because I'm waiting for answers that will fulfill my passions for me and not him. Now, all of that is kind of big and far and invisible and internal and intangible. And don't get me wrong, the big and far and invisible and internal and intangible is stunning and it's worldview shaping and it's awesome. But that is not all the Lord's prayer is. It is that. It's not all that it is. The big and the far and the invisible and the intangible sets us up for the turn toward the tangible, the visible, the near, the small, the what? The daily bread. The daily bread of verse 11, which is the corner we turned last week. So God is not only sovereignly ruling the universe for the hallowing of his namesake, but he is ruling over the fine details of your life for that same purpose. His rule over nations and kingdoms and the universe and time is not separate from his rule over the details of your life like food or daily bread. It's part of it. It's inseparably and it's wonderfully part of it, which is why Jesus moves on from your kingdom come and your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. And what does he move on to? His first earthly request does not move smoothly from his kingdom to the kingdoms of this world, but from his kingdom to what? Bread. Somewhat strange. Give us this day our daily bread. It's strange, but I don't think it's a mistake at all that the order falls the way it does. 
When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, I think it's really significant that Jesus did not immediately begin, pray this way, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And I've benefited directly from the reminder that this study has provided because it's caused me to resist the urge in my prayer time each day to say, our Father, give me, give me, give me, give me. I do eventually get there, don't get me wrong. Unapologetically, I get there, brothers and sisters, because Jesus eventually leads us there. It's telling us that bread is not a lesser thought or a lesser concern or a lesser request than God's kingdom. But if you don't understand God's name and God's kingdom and God's will, the purpose of bread falls drastically short of God's goal for providing it. His giving of bread to those who come to him for bread is an inseparable and integral part of the coming of his kingdom. In other words, daily bread is one of the daily ways that God's invisible kingdom keeps breaking through into this sin-cursed world that awaits its full redemption. And the danger for us is likely not to shy away from praying for bread because we think our concerns for daily bread are lesser concerns on God's heart than the coming of his kingdom and the fulfilling of his will. The danger for us is more likely to fail to see how inseparably linked his giving of bread is to his kingdom and his will. He's inviting us. He's commanding us to come to him for daily bread because it is his will as the sovereign of the universe to provide it by the hand of and at the expense of the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, exalted king of the kingdom that already is and yet shall be so that that king would be praised and exalted and worshipped and by that his father's great Good, sovereign name, set apart as precious and holy and beautiful among us, in other words, hallowed. And the transition from verse 11 to verse 12 is just as surprising as the transition from verse 10 to verse 11. So from God's kingdom to daily bread. And now from daily bread to what? Forgiveness? And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now before we even talk about the meaning of this verse, let's take note of the significance of it in relation to what surrounds it, which I think is indicated by the small word, and. Notice, there was no and separating or connecting the first three petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I'll just say that I was helped significantly by D.A. Carson here. He notes that the first three petitions stand independently of each other, but the last three are connected by the word and, perhaps suggesting in his words that life sustained by food is not enough. We also need forgiveness of sin and deliverance from temptation. Al Mohler makes a similar point that I think explains the connection that D.A. Carson helped me see. So Al Mohler says, I'll put it up there 
for you or not, because I usually go through these slides and make sure that they're, there we go. If the petition, give us this day our daily bread, emphasizes our most urgent physical needs. The petition, forgive us our debts, emphasizes our most urgent spiritual need. And I just want to bring one other voice in here, because if Al Mohler's comment explained D.A. Carson's observation, a man that you've likely never heard of, but somebody that um, I just enjoy more and more listening to, he's a pastor, his name is Brian Borgman, I think. He captures so powerfully the urgency of our need of forgiveness. So when D.A. Carson says... When Al Mohler says, if the petition, give us this day our daily bread, emphasizes our most urgent physical needs. The petition, forgive us our debts, emphasizes our most urgent spiritual need. And we ask, as we should, well, how urgent is our need? Brian Borgman answers, we could be denied the fourth petition, starve, die, and still go to heaven, not so with the fifth. Wow, that's urgent. Now, you might be surprised. Um, here you go. Like, what is this thing in my pocket? It's like a purple beaded necklace that Marley stuffed in there. You might be surprised that I'm putting verse 12 in heaven and hell eternal terms. Instead of earthly, daily, relational terms. So let me just clarify for you. I'm not necessarily saying that verse 12 is referring to heaven and hell, eternal forgiveness. As a matter of fact, I would affirm that verse 12 is referring to earthly, daily, relational, cleansing type forgiveness. So you might rightly ask, what was the point then of that really threatening heaven and hell eternally urgent quote that I read you a minute ago? It's still up on the screen. So read it again. It's an eternally urgent heaven and hell oriented quote. We could be denied the fourth petition, starve, die, and still go to heaven, not so with the fifth. And I read it on purpose in connection with a very earthly daily relational verse because Jesus himself connects verse 12's very earthly daily relational words with words that are unmistakably eternally urgent heaven and hell oriented so let me show you where the Lord's prayer ends in verse 13 Jesus speaking doesn't end in verse 13 So I don't think we're supposed to stop reading there. And when we read beyond the words of the Lord's Prayer, it is striking to me that the first words Jesus speaks give further comment, not on the phrase, hallowed be your name, not on your kingdom come, not on your will be done, not on give us this day our daily bread, not on lead us into temptation or deliver us from evil, the seriousness and the urgency of forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is made clear by the reality that it is the only petition of the Lord's Prayer on which Jesus feels compelled to provide 
further comment and he wastes absolutely no time in doing so because it's the first thing he comments on when the prayer is done. So I don't know necessarily if the picture here is the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray and him doing like we would likely do and bowing his head and closing his eyes and saying, okay, let's pray. That may or may not have happened. But I'm going to pretend that it did for a minute simply to help capture the effect that verses 14 and 15 would have had and were meant to continue to have. So the the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus responds, okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when they open their eyes to fix them on him to wait for further comment, which they would have doubtless done, they would not have opened their eyes and looked elsewhere or at each other to discuss what they thought about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer ends in such a way that it demands further comment. And the disciples would not have looked to each other for further comment. They would have opened their eyes and lifted their heads and fixed them on Jesus to listen for what He would say next and what He says next to them. Not the Pharisees, not the scribes, not the Sadducees, Not the Roman soldiers, not Herod, not Pilate. The first thing he says to the the disciples face to face, eye to eye, after answering their request for help and how to pray is, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he's not taking them further in verses 14 and 15, nor is he moving on to the next subject. He's actually taking them back in verses 14 and 15 to verse 12. So he said one thing in the prayer that he felt the need to elaborate on outside of the prayer so that they would understand exactly what he meant in the prayer. And it regarded this matter of forgiveness. So I'm asking you, how do you process Jesus comments on his prayer in verses 14 and 15 in light of the words of the prayer itself in verse 12. That's a deep question, not necessarily asking you to think through it and come up with an answer right now. I'm just asking it to get you to think. Is Jesus saying, as you go about your day praying that his kingdom would break into this world afresh, according to his will, for the hallowing of his great name, in things like the provision of bread. Is he saying, is God threatening, in verses 14 and 15, to withhold daily, blood-bought, purchased, it is finished, cleansing forgiveness from you, his child, today, if you withhold it from others who've sinned against you? That is one way to read the verses, by the way. And I will acknowledge that it is not an uncommon way of reading these verses, which is also to say it is a common way to read these verses. 
But if you read verses 14 and 15 that way, it means you're also likely reading verse 12b as the cause of verse 12a. And I realize it's really hard to process what I've just said, 12a, 12b. Do I process that? So let me explain. If you read verses 14 and 15 as your God and Father... The one who adopted you into his family when he sent his spirit to apply the finished work of Jesus to your life for your regeneration, for your sealing, for your union with his only begotten son. If you read verses 14 and 15 as that father threatening to withhold purchased, blood-bought, daily cleansing Forgiveness from you, his adopted child, if you refuse to forgive others who've sinned against you in your personal life, then you are also likely reading, if you're going to be consistent, you're also likely reading verse 12b. As we have forgiven our debtors, as the cause or the basis of the petition of verse 12a, forgive us our debts, Lord. As if God has ever waited for us to act before he acts upon us. Or as if God has ever looked to us to set the pace or set the example that he then must follow, leaving the first move to us and making our act of forgiving others the grounds upon which he's not only willing to forgive, but the grounds upon which we come asking him for forgiveness. So verse 12 and verses 14 and 15 are connected. The way you read one is going to affect or determine the way you read the other. But I think there's a better way forward through these verses here this morning, brothers and sisters. And I think the better way forward is to understand our forgiveness of others in verse 12 B as the effect, not the cause, but the effect of his forgiveness of us, not the leverage we use against him to command fresh applications of the of forgiveness in the present, but the evidence with which or the condition on which we come to him as forgiven and consequently forgiving people. Do you maybe see the difference there? What I'm saying is, I think the emphasis is on the assumption in verse 12 that we are a forgiving people. Because we've been forgiven of our sins through the blood of Jesus. It's why I'm saying as functions more as evidence than example. More as condition than as leverage. More as effect than cause. The emphasis consequently falling on what follows. We forgive. Then remaining on the word as. And if the translation of as we have forgiven is a hang up for you because it seems to point backwards to past completed actions, almost forcing as to function causally. Then you should read that phrase as as we forgive. Because that is the meaning. Combined with as 
It's pointing to an assumed state of those who've been forgiven and been transformed rather than us as the example for God to follow. Emphasis being on as. God, you watch me. And I'm going to give two others a word here because they've been helpful to me. One is Al Mohler, again. The other is John Stott, and it's this quote from John Stott that I think everyone else has quoted ever since he either wrote it or said it, whichever was first. So here's Al Mohler. Jesus is decidedly not saying that we are forgiven by God because we have forgiven other people. That would make the grounds of our acceptance with God our own works and not God's grace. What Jesus is affirming in these words is that when we experience God's forgiveness, we are fundamentally transformed into forgiving people. In other words, one way we can know if we have experienced God's forgiveness is to see if we have become a forgiving people. It is simply impossible to experience the riches of God's grace and remain a stubborn, obstinate, cold-hearted person. Those who truly know the forgiveness of sins forgive others. Being a forgiving people is not optional to Christians, Christian. It is assumed that if you truly understand what you've been forgiven and at what cost, and if you truly have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you are indwelt by him and you are experiencing his relentless work every moment of every day of your life to conform you to the image of Jesus that you have been and you are evermore being transformed from the cold, stubborn, obstinate, unforgiving person that you were into a gracious, willing, eager to forgive person. John Stott speaks similarly. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own, which is, I think, where verses 14 and 15 come in. Not as a present threat from God the Father to his blood-bought, regenerated, justified, adopted, repentant, believing, sealed, indwelt, transformed, and transforming children, but as a future warning to those who withhold forgiveness from others because they hold an exaggerated view of the offenses of others against them, while all the while presuming upon the forgiveness of God in their own lives, all the while minimizing their own offenses against God. I'm saying verse 12 refers to the present and has as its basis the finished work of Jesus, the laying down of his life, the shedding of his blood to atone for our sins and wash us clean. And when we've been washed clean by God's grace, we are transformed by that same grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit into joyful, willing, eager, forgiving people and having truly experienced that cleansing, we not only boldly and unashamedly come to the Father who forgave, to forgive, meaning to wash clean again and again and again when we sin in life because we know that the finished work of Jesus remains sufficient for our daily cleansing, but we are also quick to extend forgiveness. Again and again and again, or as Jesus says, until 70 times 7, which transcends limits. 
And this blood-bought, spirit-wrought, transformed, sanctified, miraculous forgiveness of others in this life will be a mark at the final judgment of all who have truly been forgiven of sin through Christ and over whom the Father fully, finally, eternally declares justified, forgiven, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter forever into the joy of your Master. That is what verses 14 and 15 are portraying. Not a present threat, but a future warning. I think it's why the verb referring to the Father's forgiveness there is future, while the verb referring to our forgiveness of others is aorist, and it's rightly translated as a present, because if you forgive others their trespasses, if that's you, You're showing the evidence of one who has truly been forgiven and truly been transformed into the image of of the one who laid down his life to accomplish your forgiveness. And you here are invited to come to your Father confidently in life, 70 times 7, without limit, requesting daily cleansing and not be turned away, as well as resting assuredly in life that in the end of life, Justification, forgiveness, joy, and entrance into the kingdom of heaven is yours forever. But it also means, because the verbs are the same in verse 15 as they are in verse 14, aorist in reference to our forgiveness of others, rightly translated as present, and future in reference to the Father's final declaration over us, that the lack of this evidence in life not only excludes you from the daily cleansing, blood-bought grace of verse 12, because God is not your Father, because you've never truly seen the enormity of your sins against him and repented and believed the gospel, but it also means that the assurance of future, eternal, final, irreversible, declared, justified, forgiven, enter, cannot be yours either. But rather the threat of depart from me. I do not know who you are. You cannot be one of mine. As Timothy says, you profess to know, as Paul says to Timothy, you profess to know me, but in works you've denied me. And I think that Jesus gives his disciples a vivid, vivid illustration of verse 15 later on in this gospel. It's Matthew 18. I'm going to read it to you as I close. All the while pleading with you not to be a presuming people, but a forgiving people. Not a leverage-seeking people, but a grace-giving people. Knowing that forgiveness is not an optional consideration for those who've been forgiven, but a joyful privilege. An undeniable evidence and a clear reflection of our own far greater forgiveness from God at the expense of Christ as well as a mark of the ongoing breakthrough of the kingdom of God into this cold, stubborn, unforgiving world where you are meant to shine forth as lights. So listen to this parable and reflect on the warning of verse 15. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed his master, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, and I'll pay you. And he refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And Jesus says, Exactly like he says in verse 15, so will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Christ fellowship, may the name of our God be hallowed among us. May the kingdom of God break through among us. May the will of God be done among us as the spirit uses this word his word to free, to free some of us of sinful, indicting, condemning grudges that we've held against others for years or days or hours so that you truly, finally forgive. Truly, finally forgive, which means, according to Brian Borgman, who asks, how do you know when you've truly forgiven someone? And he answers, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them well. When we grieve at their calamities. And I'm praying that God might use these words to effect that kind of liberating forgiveness in the hearts of any carrying grudges here or presuming upon the Father here or for others of you who by grace are free to simply boldly unashamedly continue to come again and again and again to a father who eagerly, joyfully, unreservedly, and eternally forgives. And is likewise eager to grant his children daily cleansing, fresh applications of the finished work of his son for your ongoing freedom in life so that the grace that is extended to you in Christ might continue to be extended through you to others for the manifestation of God's invisible kingdom in this cold, stubborn, obstinate, unforgiving world.